0: Dr. Chris, welcome to Food Integrity Now. Thanks for having me, Carol. I'm
1: excited to be here.
0: Well, I'm excited to speak with you and uh, share, uh, have you share about your book that's coming out this month. Do you, have, do you have a date on that yet?
1: It was supposed to be out September 21st, but people are getting copies shipped already from Amazon and bookstore.org. I already have lots of people that have it in their hands. Oh, great. So it came early.
0: Wonderful. So I'm thrilled to chat with you today about the book, The Virus and the Hosts, which is certainly a topic which is on many people's minds these days. And I really enjoyed the book and I really found it to be a practical resource book. And I think our listeners will too. So let's dig in. First of all, can you talk with us a little bit about how you got into natural medicine? Just give us a little background about you.
1: Sure. So I, you know, I had a couple different careers. I was a landscaper, and then I went to business school. And I I did a bunch of other things. And in, in school, I hurt my elbow. And I could not figure out what was wrong with it. And I went to the physical therapist and they had me move it around a bunch. Didn't really help much. I went to the medical doctor. They wanted to inject it with steroids. I went and saw um, an acupuncturist and that helped a little bit. And then eventually I went and saw a chiropractor at the behest of my girlfriend in college. And the chiropractor examined me and she said, you know what you should do? You should stop rock climbing for a little while. And that was like the first person that said anything like that and reasonable. And that stuck with me. So years later, after my career in business was over, I thought, gosh, you know, what about becoming a chiropractor? That really seemed like something that could help people. So I went back to school in Portland, became a chiropractor. And about halfway through that training, I realized that I needed more because I was very interested in treating the whole person. I really was interested in internal medicine, infectious disease, pediatrics, toxicity, and you know so I, I went on to naturopathic school, did four years of that, got a naturopathic degree, studied homeopathy during that, got deeply interested in botanical herbal medicine and nutrition during that time. So that was my educational training, and then I, I got into private practice. I hit the ground running the day I got my license, and I haven't looked back. I love working with clients. I love sitting across from people and getting their story. I love being in person with them. And as you know, people, unfortunately, are just getting sicker and sicker. So the cases are getting more complex and therefore more interesting. And uh, I think there's just a great need for people like me out there to really try and unravel people's health mysteries for them.
0: That's wonderful, and I know that uh, one of your specialties is Lyme disease. So we'll we'll talk about that a, a little bit later on, which I had, and and healed so uh, 20 years ago. So I'm I'm curious to talk about that. But um, I think one thing that we all know is the coronavirus crisis has certainly been on everyone's mind over the past two and a half years. And as you say in the book, and as we know, not a single major public health official took the step of telling people, you need good health, And that will be your best defense against infectious disease. We didn't hear that. That was crazy.
1: Not from one person. Not from one. I know it was shocking to me throughout this entire thing that it appeared as if We were driving people sort towards certain objectives and missing the, the elephant in the room, the thing right in front of us that people get sick, whether it's from chronic bacterial infections, acute viral infections, systemic fungal infections, when their health is out of balance, when they're eating a diet that isn't right for themselves, when they're not getting proper exercise, they're not getting sleep, good nutrition and water and like you said, not a single public health official addressed that throughout the last two and a half years.
0: Was this kind of the impetus for you to uh, write this book because of that?
1: Absolutely. That's exactly where I felt um, stymied almost in my position because I, you know, I can only see so many people a day and the phone was ringing off the hook and the emails were coming in and I was seeing good and bad information on the internet and I just wanted to reach out to as many people as possible because I deeply feel that this is not the last pandemic we're going to see and I don't even think it's going to be the last one we're going to see in short order I suspect that in the next two to five years we're going to likely have another big one and I wanted to give people a tool to get themselves healthy So they were more prepared for the next one before it came along.
0: Excellent. Well, you outline in the book so many tools needed to create better health and have a healthy immune system. And we're going to talk about some of those ways. But first, let's discuss why the virome is vastly misunderstood.
1: So in the last 15 or so, 20 years, people have really started to understand that bacteria in our body is our friend. We now know, those of us that are paying attention, know about the the roles of bacteria in our guts for making essential vitamins, that bacteria play a role in our immune system, that bacteria play a role in the production of neurotransmitters in the brain. And so people that are paying attention to health these days, if they take an antibiotic or they have a gastrointestinal issue, they will often go down to the health food store and buy a probiotic, right? Something with lactobacillus in it or bifidobacterium. That's that's somewhat become common knowledge. It is not common knowledge that we are as much virus as perhaps even bacteria. And it's probably not common knowledge because it's only beginning to really become, be studied in the last seven to 10 years. But we have lots and lots of viral particles in our body that do all sorts of things. We have tons of viral DNA and RNA that codes for particular things in our immune system, that codes for the way our different organs work. And so I suspect that in the next 10 years, it will become common knowledge that the bacteria, the virus, and the fungal growth in our body have as much to do with us as we do. There may be more of their cells than there are even human cells. So that's one of the premises of my book is that, you know, up until this point, and certainly through the pandemic, viruses were so sort of always viewed as an invader or an enemy. And that's not to in any way diminish the fact that certain viruses, when they're virulent enough in an unhealthy person, can you know cause disability or death, like we saw many times over in COVID. But we should also recognize that viruses play a fundamental role and that perhaps we don't fully understand that role yet either. I don't make any claims in the book that I completely understand what it is that viruses do for us, but they clearly do more than we've previously assigned to them. And I think that should be a, a big area of study to investigate because there's, probably not much in the human body that doesn't serve a purpose right so let's open our minds and really try and understand that because it will only lead to better health and longevity for humans in general
0: so basically what you feel needs to be studied further is um, perhaps the positive viruses
1: exactly there's tons of them there's tons and tons if you look in the book i go through and i talk about a bunch of different ones that um, help our gastrointestinal function, help our neurological function, as I alluded to before, our immune system function. We have viral RNA that helps code for our immune system's ability to fight cancer cells. So if we take this sort of scorched earth approach that all viruses must be eradicated and or we must live inside a sterilized bubble to avoid them, I think we're, we're fooling ourselves. And that uh, it goes back to the former point of if we are healthy and in balance with those things that in my, in the book, I call pathogen partners, bacteria, fungus, viruses, even parasites and protozoa that when we are out of balance act like a pathogen, but when we are in balance, they act like a partner. And yes, I think we need to study those in great detail because that will lead to greater health.
0: Yes, well, when you think about you know the, the continued study of the microbiome, um, that's only been, what, within the last 15 years or so that we've learned so much about the gut-brain connection and the vagus nerves and all, all of that, we've, we're putting this all together. So the information is just coming out pretty rapidly and if you're paying attention, uh, you can learn a lot, you know, through podcasts like this. And really, I love it because um, people are really starting to take their health into their own hands and, and realize that there's things that we can do as individuals we can just make it so we don't get sick.
1: I think I think we have to at this point. Yeah, we're on the precipice of, a, as we call it, a tsunami of chronic disease. And if people don't take back their health and don't start to understand the role of these pathogen partners, and don't start to listen to people like you who are experts in what they should eat we are going to see an unprecedented amount of cancer, cardiovascular disease, chronic neurological disorders, and chronic infectious disease like we've never seen before.
0: Well, we already are, but it's going up and up and up. So um, so let's discuss, uh, prior to the discovery of viruses, uh, pathogens that were known to infect humans included, which you spoke about, bacteria, protozoa, parasites, and fungi. I just thought it would be interesting for you to just kind of give a brief description of what, what those are. I mean, just like people hear protozoa, they may not know what that is.
1: Sure. And
0: I thought we could just do a little education in that
1: area. Oh, I think that'd be great. Cause I, I, you know, I sit across from clients every day and, and I think there's a lot of general confusion about those different categories of pathogens and, um, I think, I think it would help people a lot to understand, though. Sure. So let's start with protozoa. So protozoa, the most common one that people know of is giardia, you know, that microscopic, little, essentially parasitic form that lives in lakes and streams, uh, rivers, and that people can pick up if they drink unfiltered water. And so there's a lot of protozoa out there. And I find protozoa in my clients every single day. Not just Giardia, but Blastocystis, Hominis, Endolimax, Nana. There's a a whole host of them. And in a healthy person, they don't seem to do much. But in an unhealthy person, people will have gas, bloating, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain after eating. So anyone that's having chronic gastrointestinal issues needs to be worked up for protozoa because they're very common. If you take a step up from that, then we think about parasites, which, Carol, you might be surprised too. I find parasites every single day in my clinic. No,
0: I, I I know a lot about parasites, so I hear you.
1: Yeah, yeah. We could probably talk about that for a couple hours. Right. It's It's amazing how many people have parasitic infections that cause problems. Because once again, you know, we've evolved over millennia and- we, we have had less sanitary conditions in most of human living up to this point. So I suspect that we were in harmony with many parasites for a long period of time. But now that our guts are full of glyphosate, you know, toxic roundup, heavy metals, microplastics, our gastrointestinal tracts can't be in harmony with the many parasites that we find that range from things like tapeworm to roundworm, uh, there's, you know, hookworm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We find them every day and they, they cause a similar set of symptoms as the protozoa do. Fortunately, both of those are easily treated with herbs. And if they're not, you know, going away with the herbs, then typically we'll step up to some sort of antiparasitic medication to eradicate them or bring them into balance at least. So that's sort of the big category of those. Fungus is really interesting. You know, it, it, in the same way with the virome, I think we have a fungome that is vastly, vastly misunderstood too. In the, in the simplest sense, you know, we know that Candida is a symbiotic and um, potentially helpful fungus or yeast that grows in our bowels that can easily get out of balance if someone's eating too much sugar or a diet that's wrong for them or has too much stress. But that candida or yeast in our bowel performs interesting functions for us, not the least of which is it helps metabolize and break down heavy metals. So candida can be there because you have heavy metal toxicity of the bowel and then helps to get rid of those heavy metals. So funguses and yeast um, are, are a very important part of our gut fungome. And then bacteria, you know, people are familiar with the concept of bacteria in general, I think, things like streptococcus, staphylococcus, E. coli, a broad category of both useful and harmful multi-celled organisms that you can see under a microscope that, you know, all of these things, interestingly, if we didn't have bacteria, if we didn't have parasites and protozoa, if we didn't have fungus on the earth, life would not be sustained. All of life utilizes these different forms to help perpetuate itself. And and I think viruses are part of that also.
0: Yeah. And how are viruses different then? I know you talked a little bit about this, but how are they different than this category of pathogens?
1: Sure. I go into that in the book because I've always found that fascinating. You know, part of my reason for writing this book too was I've seen so many people over the years with chronic viral infections. The classic being type two herpes, genital herpes. And I saw over and over again that viruses didn't react in the same way that bacteria, protozoa, parasites, and fungus did when we were trying to remove them from the body. In that typically people's viral infections when you would work on them, they would just sort of go quiet for a little while, but then they would come back. First a bacterial infection on the skin, let's say you got a bacterial infection, you went to a hot spring or something, you got something on your arm and you put in a topical antibiotic on it, it, typically goes away. You don't see that again, but a viral presentation would come back over and over and over again. Or the other interesting thing, Carol, is that I've seen so many couples over the years where one of them had a chronic viral infection the, the two of them lived together, they cohabitated together, they ate together, they made love, all the things that people do together, and the other person never got the virus. So that always spurred in my mind that there's something interesting about viruses. So as I started to dig into it, I came to realize there's some fundamental things about viruses that are different than these other pathogens. One is that they don't appear to have a lifespan. Viruses do not have the typical things that define um, senescence or death in bacteria and fungus. They just don't have that. They've found viruses that were in the ice or in deep vents in the earth that were tens of thousands of years old. So viruses have this very expanded lifeline, I suppose you could look at it. They, viruses also, don't have any means by which to move around. They're non-motile, unlike spores from a fungus that can fly and land on something, or bacteria that could have cilia that move it around, or parasites like a worm that can move through tissue. Viruses don't have any motility associated with them. They literally float on air currents and land on something until we come in contact with them. Viruses also don't imbibe anything, they don't eat. All these other types of pathogens have to take something inside of themselves in order to sustain their life. Viruses don't eat anything. They don't require any sustenance and and it doesn't harm them in any way. So that was also really fascinating to me. Um, You know, there's all these things about them that just sort of, in a way, put them in another category that I think bears a lot of consideration. When we have all these other things that we know make humans sick, and there's this other, uh, you can't even really call it a life form, that doesn't conform to all these other typical, you know, things that these, these uh, pathogens do, it, it makes you scratch your head.
0: Wow. And um, so much that we know and so much that we don't know about viruses let's discuss toxins and how they make us sick. I know that's a huge topic and we're going to get into some of your individual steps in a little bit, but let's talk about what are some of the most common toxins that you see that are making people sick?
1: Sure. And that's one of the other reasons I wrote the book is because back to this these musings on viruses that I've had for years, one of the things I also noticed about patients, Carol, was that the more toxic a person was, the more likely they would be someone that would have a recurrent reappearing virus. It was a pattern that I saw over and over and over again. So it really got me thinking about what's the relationship between toxins and viruses. So I look at toxins every day in my clients using sophisticated testing, a variety of different means, whether that's checking excretions from the body for toxic load, looking at their blood under the microscope, looking at conventional testing, but it's something that I do every single day. And I would say the things that I see overwhelmingly over and over and over again, the molds are a big one, the toxic molds, Uh, not the fungi and yeast we were talking about earlier, but the toxic ones typically from water damaged buildings and cars and offices. Heavy metals are also huge. Every single client I check has some degree of heavy metal toxicity, every single one. The other one that almost every single patient has is glyphosate or Roundup. Yeah. (laughs) Even people that eat organic, that eat at home, these people are still showing up with Roundup in their urine.
0: Well, it's in the air, it's in the water, it's, you know, it's just, it's everywhere.
1: It's everywhere. Yeah. Even little kids. I mean, I check, I see a lot of
0: kids breast milk. I'm on the board of moms across America with Zen Honeycutt, the founder. And uh I'm the president of the board there. And uh we tested breast milk for glyphosate and really sad, you know, as well as other things. But uh yeah, it's it's everywhere. So the EPA is going to decide supposedly by October first whether they're going to renew the license or not allow it to be anymore. And we're hoping, but you know it's already, you know, in the soil, it's already everywhere, but we've got we've got to stop it.
1: How many moms did you check? How much breast milk? I, I saw that and you know,
0: I don't have that exact figure in front of me right now, but if people are curious about that, they can find it on momsacrossamerica.org and um th- they can they can go there to the blog and do a search and they'll see it. Not surprising to us. I think it was surprising to many people, though.
1: Yeah. Yeah, if people don't know, you know glyphosate or Roundup, which has been used on uh, commercially created foods around the world for decades now, is an immune disruptor. It damages the way our immune system works. It damages the lining of our gastrointestinal tract. It's carcinogenic. It's yeah. neurotoxic. It yeah. damages the heart. It, the yeah. list goes on and on and on and on.
0: I interviewed uh, Dr. Don Huber, who is a uh, plant pathologist, uh, professor emeritus, uh, from Purdue. And he's probably one of the most knowledgeable scientist type person that I know about glyphosate. And when I interviewed him, he, we were talking about DDT and he said that DDT is a pittance toxicity wise compared to Roundup or to, uh, glyphosate based herbicides. So, yeah, so that we know that's a big one. So, um, Okay. So what are, what are some of the other ones? So you talk about molds, you talked about heavy metals, you talk about uh, glyphosate and and glyphosate's not the only toxic herbicide or chemical we're getting there. There's, you know, dicamba and uh, several other ones too.
1: We see a lot of those organophosphate um, yes. pesticides. We use Great Plains Laboratory for testing yep. for those. And it shows a whole bunch of different ones. And people come back with varying degrees. We see a lot of plastics. I see a lot of um, dry cleaning solutions coming through in people's urines. A lot of the um, solvents that are used in industry come through too. And and the surprising thing, Carol, is most of the time people don't know where they're getting these things. You know, stuff will come through on these panels and they really don't have an idea. And to me, it's, you know, you were sitting in that seat in the airport, the brand new seat that they just put in there that was releasing 250 chemicals. Right. It was the new car or the Uber that you sat in and drove from the airport to your hotel. And then the dry cleaning solutions that were done on your pants suit, It's, you know, the list just goes on and on. These things are pervasive and they're in just about everything. So unless yeah. we're being very conscientious about the materials of the things that we use around us, in our kitchens, in our homes, in our automobiles, we are all being filled up with these toxins at a rate that we've never seen before. Yeah. And we honestly don't know what this is gonna to do to the human form. Uh, we, we have clues based on the biggest diseases on the planet right now, but we don't know the long-term effects of all these chemicals.
0: Yeah, it's nearly impossible to get rid of all of those chemicals, but we do our best to just, you know, try to eat as clean as possible, only use clean products in your home, get rid of your plastics in yes. your home and uh, make sure you're drinking clean water. But um, it's, it's quite difficult, but I, I don't want people to be discouraged though, because there's, there's always a way um, I strongly suggest that um. You know, if you can grow your own food, yes, and um, we're doing that here, and and there's a lot of people who are doing it, even on a small scale.
1: Group together yeah. with other people, get some neighbors, get some friends. Yeah, hard to grow enough food by yourself to to feed yourself, but if you can get together with other people and do it. Absolutely. Or support your local farmers, too.
0: Well, we started Moms Cross America started the uh, Neighborhood Food Network, which is happening all over the uh, country. And I started one in my neighborhood. I I live in a rural area where people do grow a lot of food in Southern Cal. And our group has now 50, 58 participants and we trade. And it's, you know, I think this just needs to be the norm. You know, I think back in the day, our grandparents or great grandparents, if they couldn't grow something, they'd get it from their neighbors and they would trade. And, you know, you also create community. That's really a wonderful thing. So let's get back to the book. So um, you talk about detoxifying a lot in your book and how people may be a good detoxifier or a poor detoxifier. Can you speak a little bit about that and and how you know that and what people might be able to do about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. So that's one of the basic tenets of my practice in my book is that we all need to be detoxifying every single day as we're filling up with these chemicals. If we're doing several different things a day and rotating through them and none of them take a lot of time and none of them take a lot of money, but if we do a little bit every day, we're sort of bailing the boat of what we're filling up with. And so I do see, uh, we don't have an objective marker yet besides what we can see in people's genetics around who's a poor detoxifier and who's a good detoxifier, but it plays out in practice. You know, the people that are good detoxifiers, they're the people that don't go on to develop early cancers and earlier cardiovascular disease and early neurodegenerative diseases the people that are poor detoxifiers are the ones that develop those things in their thirties, forties, and early fifties, because they're just genetically not as apt at being able to remove the different chemicals that they come across. So those things come through. If we, you know, we analyze a lot of people's genetics, we use their 23 andme or any of those other, um, see stuff.
0: if they have the MTAFR, you know,
1: MTHFR or yeah. C O M T or yeah. any of you know, a whole host of them that have to do with detoxification. And you can look at those and and sort of project how well someone's going to be a detox, how good of a detoxifier, or you can just see if they tend to develop those diseases early. And so ev- almost every single person in my practice gets put, some, put on some level of detoxification. And it's really just a function of how long and how much. Before their cells start to turn back on, their mitochondria start to work again, their guts start to work. But um, it's there certainly are people that are more genetically able to dump toxins than others.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting to know. So let's talk about COVID for a minute. Most people who died of SARS-CoV-2. They had uh, a chronic illness and, and usually four or more comorbidities. And you say that if we want to, to lower our susceptibility in the future of possibly, like you said earlier, earlier and more deadly pandemic than the one we just experienced, we need to look at our patterns that we, we have, how we're eating. So let's talk about some of the tools needed.
1: Even though we all experienced horrible things through COVID and we all know some people that died, it really was not that deadly of a pandemic. If you look at it in comparison to historical pandemics, it, we still are just at a percentage of the population that died, a small, small percentage. And as I allude to in the book, and you did there too, is that most of those people did have significant comorbidities, obesity, blood sugar, dysregulation issues, cardiovascular disease for the folks that died. So if we want to be prepared for one that's coming along that could be even just a few percentages more deadly, the things we need to do, one, we've got to make sure that we are eating as clean as possible. We have to make sure that's what's going in is 100%, absolutely organic, sustainable foods that are low in simple carbohydrates and are rich in complex carbohydrates. And um, you know, making sure we're eating a variety of different fruits and vegetables. Making sure that if we're eating animal proteins, that they are clean, that they don't have pesticides, herbicides. Antibiotics growth hormones in them vaccines that they are all grown in a very healthy, sustainable way. So the nutrition is fundamental Two is the point about keeping our toxic burden as low as possible for the reasons we already described and then three the other way I really look at it too is, you know how are we, the other, the other arms of this are the diseases that lead off of poor health. And the most predominant disease patterns on the planet today are cancer, cardiovascular disease, chronic neurological disorders, and um, infectious disease. So how do we stop those disorders from forming, which then make us susceptible to chronic viruses? And the ways you cut cancer off at the knees is doing everything we already, alluded to, also really making sure that we're being very careful about maintaining healthy blood sugar. That's a piece of all of those diseases and our susceptibility to viruses that I think is often overlooked. And that healthy blood sugar control, which at one extreme is type 2 diabetes, but the other is just blood sugar dysregulation, needs to be looked at and maintained. How do you do that? So, For the most part, we have to watch our intake of simple carbohydrates, which a lot of the planet consumes in vast quantities at this point. That's bread, rice, cereal, pasta, grains, things of that nature. You can eat some of those, but they should be a small portion of what's on your plate. People tend to overeat. That's a very common pattern too. People gorge themselves on simple carbohydrates, which spikes our blood sugar has a whole cascade of negative health effects. And people also tend to eat too many processed sugars and carbohydrates. You know, they're essentially like empty ghost calories, I call them, Mm -hmm. where if you eat a loaf of white bread or a couple pieces of white bread or a pastry or a donut, you really get almost no nutritional value. You spike your blood sugar and you send your immune system into a slight state of depression where it can't respond to chronic viruses or bacteria or fungus or any of the things that we've talked about. So blood sugar control is also a really important way that we need to take control of our health to help prevent some of these. And dis- it's
0: real easy to buy blood sugar little apparatus. And you can you can test yourself when you eat something to see if it spikes your your blood sugar. I've interviewed well both uh, Dr. Perlmutter and Dr. William Davis, who wrote Wheat Belly, and you know it's just real simple. If you're not sure, you know to get one of those and and find out because every body is different. Typically, if you're going to eat some kind of processed cookie or something, you know you know that's going to spike it. But there's some other food that you may not be aware of that you you know if you're unsure, you can just test.
1: So that's. <laughs> Absolutely. I agree completely with that. And when you get your regular blood panels done, ask your doctor to run a hemoglobin A1C. It's a simple, inexpensive test. And it tells you how well you've been controlling your blood sugar over the last three months. I mean, it should be a screening procedure in every single blood test that's done, because then it can give you a clue about how well you're controlling it. You want something under 5.6. If you're an adult, you want something under 5.6. And if you're trending above that, or you're slightly above that, you need to do something about your blood sugar control.
0: Yeah. Another um, marker that um, is, I feel as important is your uric acid levels.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: I interviewed Dr. David Perlmutter on his new book, Drop Acid. And it's, it's just incredible that mainstream medicine, they they look at that number and they say, oh, you're fine. You don't have gout, but that that number really, really matters. And if you want to learn more about that, get the book or listen to my interview. But that's just another really good um, health marker to take a look at.
1: Easy, cheap one to do. They're not expensive tests.
0: I did have to tell my doctor when I went just for my yearly blood work, which is about the only thing I go to my regular doctor for. I did have to ask him for that one because the uric acid it wasn't in there in the list of tests. So I educated him a little bit. (laughs) I actually brought him a copy of the book. (laughs) What else do we need to do?
1: Well, you got to move your body too. I mean, this yep. shouldn't come surprise anybody, but I'm a firm believer in exercise, you know, and working, you know, even if you're a construction worker or you're a gardener or you work outside, that doesn't count. You know, we've got to do something where we're breaking a sweat and we're moving our body vigorously, where we're, you know, it's where our heart rate's getting up, we're having difficulty talking while we're doing it. And I'm a big advocate that we should be exercising almost every day of the week. Yeah. You know, where maybe
0: you- one day off.
1: One know, day
0: and I also tell people too, that, that seems a little daunting to them. Sometimes yeah. if they haven't exercised, I say, well, just start by walking for an hour every day and build up. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's so important.
1: So important. Yeah. yeah. I think any of these things, dietary changes, exercise changes, any habit changes, can be difficult for people because we're so goal oriented, you know, we yep. want to have lost that 20 pounds yesterday. Yeah. And I'm a firm believer in, you know, the idea of eating an elephant. Yeah. That the way eating an elephant is just one bite at a time and <laughs> setting small goals for yourself over time leads to big change. Yeah. So, I I don't I don't want anybody to have huge expectations for themselves around changes to happen overnight. It takes right. time but I've seen it so many times where people thought there's no way I'm ever going to be able to fill in the blank. Right. Stop smoking, stop eating sugar, right. Do a weightlifting program. But if they just start small and, you know, consistency is your friend start small and do it every day. Over time, you build good habits.
0: Well, base hits win the ball game. Yeah, you know, that's I. That's not. Uh, I stole that one from uh, Dr. Tom O'Brien too, who wrote the Autoimmune Fix and and you can fix your brain. But I think that's. I think that just really sums it up. You know, it can be. It can be overwhelming, but. Right. One day at a time, one step at a time, one habit at a time, yes. we can do it. so um so that's great. And again, in the book, you you carry all this much further and and talk about supplements and talk about um, different ways to get healthy. Besides what we've talked about, you go into much more detail. As my point, um, we have a whole
1: I, chaplet, chapter on supplements that talks about ones for detoxification, the ones for basic nutrition. I outline all of that. I have a whole chapter on herbs, you know, simple botanical friends that you can grow or find in your neighborhood or even in your city that can help you detoxify that you can take every day. Yeah, I wanted the the books to really be a manual for people. My hope is that they would read the first half of it find the story interesting, understand some greater things about health, and then use the second half of the, of the book as sort of a manual that they would go back to over time. Yeah,
0: look it up. Okay, I've got this going on. Let's let's see what I can do about it. And I, th- I think you really succeeded with that. Well, as I mentioned in the beginning, one of the things that you is one of your specialties is um, chronic Lyme disease. And uh, I'm just curious, are you seeing more people with Lyme now than ever before? What, I guess, I guess I just want you to talk a little bit about what tips you off that, that somebody has Lyme. Do you, do you do the test? Do you do the, you know, when I, when I had Lyme 20 some years ago, I went to some of the best. Doctors, I thought at the time, and every time I would go to a different doctor, they would tell me I had a different disease. So I had lupus, I had Sjogren's, I had uh, RA, you you name it. But I knew none of that rang true, and they had done the standard ELISA test, which, as we know, is not accurate at all. And finally, I I went to Igenix Lab, and I got a, a true, a true diagnosis. But that took me at least a year to do that. Has it gotten simpler? I mean, are there more Lyme literate doctors out there?
1: There are. I mean, a year is short these days. Still, I you know I find people that suffer two, three, five, still ten years, kind of wandering around in the wasteland with diagnoses as you described. You know, maybe some vague autoimmune diseases, uh, some gastrointestinal stuff brain fog, joint pain, deep, unrelenting fatigue that they can't figure out where it's from. And many of them end up with Lyme and or many of the other co-infections that go along with Lyme. So I think in one sense, unfortunately, Carol, there is more Lyme and those infections than ever. Fortunately, there are more, as we term Lyme literate doctors, doctors that really understand how to treat it. And yet there are still so many people that go undiagnosed and suffer needlessly for long periods of time. That was one of the other reasons I wrote the book is that I was hopeful, you know, in the back of the book, I talk about some common patterns of mold illness and Lyme and Bartonella and these things. And I hoped, you know, people would read this book and go, oh my gosh, that's what I have. I finally see it. Now I can take this to my doctor. So yeah. There's, there's still a lot of confusion. So we use IgenX. IGNX is a great testing company mm-hmm. out of California. That's sort of the gold standard these days. They, yeah. the reason they're the gold standard is they look for Lyme in a bunch of different ways. Yeah. You know, classically, like you said, the ELISA test was unreliable, but if you peer into the body three or four different ways, you might be able to see clues that the patient has a Borrelia Bordorferi or one of the other Borrelia infections that we call Lyme. As well as they test for all the other common things that go along with Lyme, you know, a bunch of the bacteria, some of the viruses, because those can often be as or more debilitating than the Lyme infection itself.
0: Yes, I I had somebody recently, it's a family member, that was having a lot of symptoms that I had when I had Lyme, and um, she went to her doctor and they ran a series of tests and. The they tested for Lyme antibodies and it came back really high, and her doctor said no, that's a, that's false. So she, uh, I, if she didn't have me to talk to, she would not have known. I mean, it, it, because this doctor, a very very brilliant man, he just didn't know what he didn't know, right? And uh, I said, you go back and you have him test that again. And he did, and it was still high. And one thing led to another. And yes, she does have Lyme disease. So a lot of people would would not know. I would They they just would rule that out. And well, it goes back
1: to the training. A lot of doctors are still trained that, you know, there's only Lyme in a certain part of the country. Right. That's it. You can't possibly have gotten it anywhere else. The only way you can get it is from a deer tick. So there's a lot of misconceptions that even start in medical school for these well-intentioned, brilliant doctors, as you described. that then, you know, they're busy, they're working through their day and they go, nope, this doesn't fit the schema that I was trained in. Can't be Lyme.
0: Luckily, there's uh, doctors out there like you and others that, you know, are well-versed in that area. And, you know, I think if you do enough research, you can find a good Lyme literate doctor these days where- 20 years ago, and not so much. It was much more difficult. I think that's great that that you're doing that. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. And thank you, Dr. Chris, for bringing us this valuable information today. The book is The Virus and the Host, and you can buy it everywhere, right? Amazon,
1: Chelsea Green,
0: which I love them. They uh, they send me a lot of great books and I get a lot of great interviews from them, so they're wonderful. But uh, I highly recommend this book. It needs to be in everybody's library as a resource book, you know especially given the climate that we're in these days. Health has got to be a priority if you want a good quality of life. And isn't that what it's all about?
1: It is. Yes, absolutely.
0: Quality of life. So thank you to our listeners. And we will be back with another great show soon to assist you with your health and to uh, enjoy your life to the fullest. And even in this crazy world, these days, you can still enjoy your life. Make wise choices, take care of your health and do what you love. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to check out our nutrition support group. Uh, The next group is Wednesday, September 14th, 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. Go to foodintegritynow.org and click on classes to sign up.
1: Thanks, Carol.